Welcome to the We Are Human Leaders podcast. After our recent episode on the four-day work week with Alex Dujunkin Pong, we've been flooded with questions and even held space for robust debates around how this might look and if it could work for different businesses around the world. Now, almost unanimously, you asked us if we could give a tangible example of a company who's been through this process. Now, if you haven't heard our previous episode on the four-day work week with Alex Jun Kim Pong, I would invite you to pause on this episode, go back and listen to that one first, and then rejoin us in this episode. I'm Alexa Sana, and together with my co-host Sally Clark, today we're speaking with Banks Benitez, former CEO of Uncharted, where he led the organization through the process of transitioning to the four-day work week in the height of the pandemic in 2020, no less. At the time, the conversation around work was very much focused on the transition of hybrid and remote work. Yet Banks had the foresight to use this catalyst for change to implement the four-day week simultaneously, a shift that he tells us was actually less challenging than the swift and forced remote work shift we faced during the pandemic. Banks was incredibly gracious in this conversation, sharing both his personal journey as a leader and entrepreneur through navigating change like the four-day week and gave us some very real and tangible insights to what this looks like from within an organization. Since taking a sabbatical after the merger of Uncharted, Banks is now the founder of Smart Workweek and the head of venture development at Ezra Climate. He's passionate about creating workplaces where humans can thrive, and this is very much palpable in this conversation. We can't wait for you to hear it. Now let's dive in. Thanks so much for being with us here on the We Are Human Leaders podcast. We're so delighted to have this conversation with you. And we'd love to start by getting to know you a little better and understanding a bit about your personal journey that has brought you to the important work that you're doing today. For sure. Thank you for having me. Honored to be here as well. I'm based in Denver, Colorado for the last 10 years. I've been part of a company called Uncharted, which supports entrepreneurs as an accelerator incubator. I suppose in the last 10 years working there and in the last, I guess, five or so as a CEO and stepped in five years ago, approximately. And then we moved to a four-day work week a couple of years after that. Then last year, our organization got acquired and we merged into another company. But I'm the son of two entrepreneurs have sort of grown up with entrepreneurship in my blood and around the dinner table, having conversations around building companies. And so I really, from a young age, just believed in the power of entrepreneurs believed in what's possible as sort of bringing this idea of building things. And that's really driven a lot of my career. So excited to be here. Thank you. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, I love that you mentioned the power of being an entrepreneur as well, Banks, because I think this sort of goes into something that we'd love to dive in with into with you. And that is that you described your former company, Uncharted, as being purposely human-centered. Is this part of that power that you believe entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship can have? And What does this mean to you and how does this impact how you lead? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we certainly aspire to be a human-led and sort of human-powered company. And and by that, I mean, I think existing with values at the center of our organization and thinking about caring for our team and for the people who worked at Uncharted and really believing like if we can support them, they can go out and do great work. So being sort of human-led was an important design element as we thought about leading the team and shaping not only the strategy of the organization, but how we built the culture inside of the organization as well. 
I think it led to different questions than just accepting sort of the standards or norms. For example, talking about the four day work week, like who chose 40 hours? Why five days? All of these things that have existed for a long time, actually not as long as some of us might think, but five day work week only is about 100 years old. If you bring a human centered perspective to the workplace, you begin to ask different questions of, well, perhaps we don't need to be working 40 hours. We can actually can work, work and work less or whatever it might be. And so I think that really guided us into thinking about ways that we could structure our work week differently, ways that we could build our team differently, a number of different things I think that could shape who we were based on being human-centered as a company. That's fascinating. And it sounds like that capacity to challenge status quo banks, that seems to be part of it as well. That's yeah. comfort in saying, well, this actually isn't working for us and we're going to rethink what that best approach is for our people. I'm curious, Banks, just to know if we're there, because it sounds like this has been something that's been a part of your leadership from fairly early. Was there someone or a company that inspired you to take this human-centered approach to building Uncharted? Yeah, I mean, I think I've certainly the product of amazing people that I've learned from and other leaders. So I think that it started in some ways with the really values-driven leadership of our organization uh, when I joined. I was not the CEO when I joined, and we had amazing leaders who were thinking divergently about what it means to build a company and a culture and what it means to care for people, what it means to be mission-driven in a world that maybe just be focused on bottom line or something. So certainly learned a lot from internally and within our team. And then as an accelerator incubator, we worked with a big network of mentors and partners and advisors. And we get to see a lot of different companies in ways that were working, things that were good, things that were not good. And we get to learn a lot from the people that were in our network and showing us about new ways of working and thinking about things differently. And also, I think I'm somebody who just really cares about the team and really cares about the harmony of the team and really believes in that, like, when I am trusted, I am the most capable version of myself and the healthiest version of myself. And so trying to bring a sense of trust into the workplace was a really big part of what we did over the 10 years at Uncharted. And I think in some ways, moving to a four-day work week was only possible because we really invested in a lot in creating a trusting workplace where the team felt like they were believed in and trusted and more capable as a result. So I think partially it just was, I didn't want to have a workplace that wasn't caring for the humans. It would not have been a fun place to be. And we had a lot of fun. Amazing. I love that you highlight that word trust. And I think we'll get deeper into that as we explore the four-day work week in your experience and in the work that you're doing now shortly. I'd love to just zoom in for a moment on something that you've written about entrepreneurship, that it invites us into a humble posture of continuous learning and curiosity. It reminds us that we are, like our businesses, constantly a work in progress. Now, can you talk about the importance of humility and continuous learning to your journey as an entrepreneur? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I was never a great student. And I think in some ways in an academic setting where you study, you study, you study, and then you're finally tested at sort of one final date. And then it's a complete culmination of all the learnings over the course of a semester. A lot of pressure in that. And then in an entrepreneurial journey, I'm sure there's some that are different than this. Many entrepreneurial journeys, it's more of an iterative process is that you have a hypothesis, you take it out to the market, you get feedback, you get rejection, you get turned down. A customer buys your product, you raise investment, you don't raise investment. Like it's a continuous iterative cycle versus a much more sequential process to many academic settings. And so for me, it was a really powerful thing to recognize that like as you show up in an entrepreneurial space, you can make a number of mistakes even before lunchtime and still have a chance to course correct along the way. I mean, I would finish the day and still do to this day of, wow, I made a lot of mistakes today. 
or I did things I regret having, I could have done things differently or a bit better or reflecting on ways to improve the next time. It's a reminder, at least, that every company is a work in progress. And as a result, we are works in progress as well. One of my favorite quotes is this idea that, I can't remember the exact quote, but it says that every company is a loosely functioning disaster. And there's something that's a little bit maybe dark in that sense, but we're in some ways only like one month away or a couple months away from not being able to make payroll. Or I thought about this a lot when it comes to our team is that the existence of a company is really just a collection of the daily choices that we make to show up again. If our team just chose not to show up the next day, then I'm not sure the company would, I mean, the company would exist on paper and bank account, but our ability to move forward really depends upon people continuing to show up. And so I think it's been a reminder for me over the years about the importance of recognizing that you can still show up even after mistakes and that it's not just about sort of one long-term test or exam or something. It is fascinating that many of us put through an education system like that. And you mentioned banks that you felt like you were a bad student and you spoke to those end of term exams, et cetera. And I certainly went through the high school university system a few times. And it is quite fascinating how poorly it sets us up to be risk takers because you are really geared towards this system that's very structured, very routine. It has that culminative score at the end of it. And for me, as a child going through primary school, high school, university, then into a career, the next most risk adverse thing that I could do was go into a graduate role. I did not at all feel prepared to do something risky, like become an entrepreneur with some of my ideas, because you've had that 17 or 18, 19 years of conditioning to work towards goals in this kind of way. So it's really interesting that you mentioned that. The reason I wanted to highlight it is I guess in my own journey to acknowledge that you can actually grow into or shift your behavior around becoming more comfortable with risk and undoing some of that conditioning by sort of gently taking steps towards it. And I love that you mentioned, obviously, the entrepreneur's journey is one, but I'm sure that in your company, you're modeling that behavior to your employees who are growing more and more comfortable in their capacity to take risks in their role, in their team, and perhaps become entrepreneurs of their own brilliant ideas down the track as well, which is really, really inspiring. Yeah, I think that's well said. And I think about this a lot. And when I'm coaching leaders, I always say, like, if you can take a risk and fail and make a mistake and do so publicly in front of your team, you are scoring major points for your team recognizing and normalizing that that's okay for you to be done internally from a cultural perspective. Couldn't agree more. And so in some ways, going back to this idea of like human-centered workplace and humanizing leadership, it's important as a leader to actually stumble and fall publicly in front of your team in a way that they see, huh, he hasn't been fired or she hasn't lost her job or still the company's okay. And still they're willing to stick their neck out there. It's a really important seeds to plant from a leadership and cultural perspective. So the team recognizes that there's permission to try things out, especially if they've been conditioned, as you mentioned, for years and years and years not to make mistakes. I mean, we come into the workplace already preloaded with all of these ideas and norms and beliefs. And so in some ways, really powerful cultures, I think, and have seen help to unwind some of that conditioning and recondition in some powerful ways and hopefully healthier ways. I mean, it takes a really powerful culture to do that. That's certainly been my experience, Banks. Having that fallibility modeled to me in the workplace was something that I hadn't experienced in my young life to date. And yeah, you're so right. It does create that psychologically safe environment where folks feel like they can take risks, challenge the status quo, and perhaps it falls flat on its face. 
nothing ventured, nothing gained. You have the lesson, right? And that's kind of the seed of innovation as well, which it sounds like you've been real driving force for in your career. Now, during your tenure as CEO of Uncharted, we've spoken a little bit about this, but in five years, the company tripled in terms of team size and doubled revenue. As you mentioned, you've also shifted to the four-day week and navigated a major merger with Common Future. So as a human-centered leader, what are some of the key lessons that you've learned in terms of managing change? Yeah, well, I would certainly say I'm an aspiring human-centered leader. I mean, again, going back to this idea of like iterative, we certainly made a lot of mistakes. It was a very eventful couple of years. Obviously, it's been eventful for so many teams and companies and leaders. Navigating COVID and thinking about all of the implications for that in the workplace from remote work. And of course, during the time we moved to a four-day work week, and then two years later, we decided to merge. And there was obviously a lot of social unrest in the U.S. during the summer of 2020 and navigating that and thinking about sort of like, how do you hold voice as an organization and speak into many issues that are pervasive across society? So, so many things. And I think in some ways, like we would have, I can't exactly remember the number of strategic goals that were perfectly followed through on from the beginning of the year. Obviously, things changed, you know, dramatically. And all of a sudden, the strategies thrown out the window. And really, I think one of the key things is to be really responsive and to be understanding reality. And that reality can be the macroeconomic reality, the public health reality of COVID. It could also just be the reality of the team, reality of the business, the reality of the financials. And so I think one of the things that I've aspired to do with some success and some failure has been to really define reality clearly and seek understanding around the mental models that I have. Are they actually mapping to reality? And we all tell stories that cloud and shape our sense of what's true. But that really led me to ask lots of questions to our team of how is this one partner or client? What would be the implications if we decided to do X, Y, and Z? And trying to round out those blind spots, I think, is like one of the most important things during a lot of change, whether it's a lot of growth and doubling team and revenue and all that. If it's downturns, if it's market conditions like we're in right now that quite, seem quite uncertain. The, the important thing of a leader is for to recognize what is true and what is not and really try to grasp that. So that's kind of one of the most important things that our leadership team tried to do was do that. And I've also found myself at times quite fearful as a CEO. And I remember in 2020, just like, will we run out of money? What will happen with our team? Letting people go. There was a number of weeks there early on when it was unclear what was going to happen. And I've found in myself that I oftentimes make really bad decisions when I'm orienting out of a place of fear. When I'm actually coming from a place of scarcity and fear, that leads me to make worse decisions. And so thinking about and trying to have the self-reflective practices to reflect on, oh, wow, I actually am afraid right now. If I really get down to the nub of it, it's fear that's driving this decision. And so I think that was another key thing for me on the psychology of leadership and self-leadership was to reflect on when is there places of fear. And then in terms of organizationally, I think if you're trying to define reality both internally and also within your own heart and mind as you think about who you are, creating spaces where people can share and speak. And that was one of the big things that we focused on with the four-day work week and other places was creating more powerful voice for our team to speak and say, hey, I see this as an opportunity. This is something that's not working. I'm worried about this. I'm burnt out. I think you could have led that meeting better. Whatever it is, is creating a chance for there to be powerful voice that's distributed as opposed to consolidated voice was another key thing. So it's a great question. It could go on and on for a long time about ways to navigate change. But in times that are deeply uncertain, it's not about this perfection of the plan. It's really about being responsive. And that requires understanding what game you're in and what mode you're in and all of that. 
That's incredibly wise guidance there, I think, Banks. And particularly what stood out for me was this idea of, and the word grounding came to mind when you were speaking about reality, that there is this sense of grounding that we can find when we are able to step out of the fear and step out of the reactiveness. And I also love that you use the word uh, responding because I like to make a delineation between reaction and response. And react to me feels like kind of automated reaction that happens when we're coming from a place of fear and that can be quite defensive or aggressive and tends to be something that just wants to get rid of the problem immediately because of the discomfort with problem. And yet responsiveness has this wisdom to it for me that comes from a place of calm. It comes from a place of having the courage to stay grounded and to sit with the unknowing for a little bit. And so I love that you mentioned that. And what I also heard you say was in terms of dealing, including people in this decision-making process, imagine for those people at that time, that must've been a really powerful experience, particularly because we were in such a state of uncertainty, of not knowing And to feel a sense of agency and inclusion in that decision-making process would have felt really meaningful for those people. So I'm really glad that you highlighted that. Yeah, I mean, certainly during COVID, I think also when we were going through our merger, that was another moment where there was a lot of trepidation of what will happen. We're going to combine forces with a much larger company. What will my job look like? How will my role change? All those things. And our COO at the time did an amazing job of trying to include people and to make sure they felt heard and listened to. I think oftentimes people like there's in small organizations, there's this belief that everybody wants to be a decision maker. Everybody needs to feel like they actually are part of the decision. And that's probably not exactly true. It's more they just want to be heard. It's, it doesn't mean that they need to all be a decision maker. You can say that so-and-so is the decision maker here, but as long as people have a chance to feel like they're heard and listened to, that really matters. And we did that well at times. We did that not well at other times, but I think that was a key part of both, of course, COVID, but of the merger was making sure our team felt heard and listened to and really caring for the team. So reacting and responding to your other points, I think that going back to this idea that I make my worst decisions when I'm a place of fear, I probably also make my worst decisions when I'm rushing or the time is collapsing between just reacting and responding, right? When that time is almost zero, I don't think I make the best decisions and creating a little bit slowing down to make bigger decisions is a really important thing. I think time is the enemy of psychological safety in so many ways, Banks. I'm really glad you paused on that. And I just wanted to bring one other thing to light that I took from what you were saying there. And I think it's really important because as someone who finds comfort in routine and a well-thought strategy or plan, when to grit and when to quit sometimes is very elusive to me. That discernment between, yes, this is the right plan, we'll execute to the end, even through the periods of challenging moments have you mentioned through the pandemic versus we're actually now facing a totally different world. And so this strategy or this plan no longer meets the needs of we're headed or the environmental factors that we're operating in. So I think that was just a really powerful message that I just wanted to take a moment to reflect on there. Yeah, it's true. I really wrestled with this over the years in the sense of like, there are some changes really uncomfortable for people to go through and it's hard to lead through change. It's not necessarily fun to do so. Um, And people want to stick with whatever is the status quo for them and whatever is comfortable for them. And I think in some ways, normalizing and setting expectations for the team and saying things are going to change. Like actually, that's the constant here. I remember we had gone through maybe like two reorganizations in the span of two years, like right before COVID to two years after COVID. And somebody's like, wow, two reorganizations, like that's a lot. You guys have gone through a lot of change. I was like, well, who hasn't in that time? In some ways, if the expectation is that things won't change, then change can feel really uncomfortable. If the expectation is that things will certainly change, undoubtedly, that things are going to evolve, then change can feel a little less uncomfortable than it naturally is. And I think in some ways, 
really trying to proactively communicate to the team and say, hey, it's going to get worse before it gets better. This is not the end of the change. There's more coming. Hang tight because there's more ahead. I think some of that coaching and support around the psychological safety and psychological bravery of the team was an important thing because those plans are not unchanging. It will absolutely evolve. I think that's such a beautiful message there, Banks, to also have this sort of constant awareness that change is the norm. Makes me think of sort of a river flow almost that we have. There's going to be rapids, there's going to be calmer waters, but the water is going to keep moving. And if we can sort of get comfortable with that idea individually and as a team, that really empowers us. Now, I'm curious, you mentioned after the merger, I know that you took a sabbatical. And I actually took one myself after I quit as a finance lawyer. And so I'm personally (laughs) interested and curious in what your key takeaway was from that time away and whether you would recommend a sabbatical to other entrepreneurs and if so, why? Yeah, it was was a great privilege to be able to take some time away and take a sabbatical. And in some ways it was because there was like so much privilege to be able to take seven months off. It felt quite rare, like it might not happen again for me, which was great in a sense, because it made me really grateful for the time that I had. And I tried to get away from the screen and took some road trips and did some writing and spent some time with my partner and family and, you know, camping and all the things that maybe you hear when people say they're going on sabbaticals. But honestly, the biggest thing that was a takeaway for me from the sabbatical, and I guess it sort of started to happen a bit before the sabbatical, was instead of taking sort of seven months on whatever, however rare that would be, I started taking a like, like a Sabbath every week which was like a Saturday of complete rest. And like no computers, no work was really a chance to rest. And honestly, it's like way more accessible and available for people than taking seven months off for a sabbatical is to truly take one day a week and say like, I'm not going to dedicate this to a bunch of chores or admin or work or trying to get ahead or a lot of whatever, and really just sit in a place of rest. And I think As a leader, as somebody who went back to the conditioning that you mentioned, Alexis, of just like growing up and trying to be productive and trying to get a lot done, you're just like, I'm like constantly going all the time, doing a bunch of different stuff all the time. So I think in some ways, like the more radical move and the thing that I've kept going over the since the sabbatical has been taking every Saturday to just not work and to really like let time slow down in a day that we're in a week that feels like time is moving so quickly. And so whenever people ask about the sabbatical in the seven months, I'm saying like, oh, absolutely. If you can take a sabbatical, you can take seven months off or three months off or one month off or two weeks off, like absolutely do it. It helps, I think, to reset so many things. It helps you realize, you know, you're not as important as you thought you were, that there's the world continues to go on outside of the role that you had connected to so much self-importance and all those amazing, beautiful things that I think is sabbatical can do. But taking one day each week is like in some ways way more accessible and almost more radical of a concept of just like, yeah, we don't work. I'm not going to work on Saturdays. Like it's just going to be a day of like a flow and rest. And so that's been, I think, the big thing for me coming out of a, of a long season of seven months of rest is to say, how can I install this on a weekly cadence in a way that is possibly more long term than I'm not sure when the next sabbatical will be. Amazing. Thanks. Brings me to back to the last six months that I was a lawyer, I actually took every Wednesday off for six months. And that was, I'll never forget, I think probably the first or second Wednesday. And I was sitting at a cafe in Amsterdam somewhere at maybe 10, 10 30 in the morning, getting a coffee. And I was astonished and almost bewildered that there were all these people going about their lives, having coffees on a work day at 10 30. I was like, okay, I get the people behind computers and there's people with buggies who have kids, right? What is everyone else doing outside of a corporate office? For, in my mind, that was just so the norm. And that really shifted my thinking. So I'm so glad that you mentioned that. I think that's a really powerful takeaway for all of us. 
even those who are still you know, working a five-day week to take Saturday as that space. Yeah, or a Sunday or, or whatever it is. Like, There's so many different ways to live a life and so many different ways to work. And I think that was, again, going back to the four-day work week, was like, oh, there's different ways to do this than just the pre-loaded five days, 40 hours. Like, There's people that are having a coffee at a cafe on a Wednesday morning. Whenever I'm driving in the middle of the week, I'm like, where's everybody going? Like, where are all these cars? I love that. Now, Banks, to dive into that more, in 2022, you founded Smarter Work Week to support other companies making the shift to that four-day week. What drove you to focus on this in your work? Is this, you know, is this a result of that sabbatical wisdom that you gained having that period of rest and then installing that into your own week? And how does a Smarter Work Week, the company you founded, go about providing support to other organizations to transition into this? So when we considered a four-day work week in 2019, there were very few examples of companies that were out there that were on a four-day work week. And there just were, were so few. And you could Google, it was like this, it was a few number of Google results at the time. And now it just completely ballooned out into so many different companies and case studies and articles. And so we were flying blind into our own four-day work week experience. And we decided to run a three-month pilot to test out if the four-day work week made sense for our company before we decided to make it long-term company policy. But we didn't know. How do you design a pilot? What does that look like? How do you think about moving from five days to four days? It certainly felt quite intimidating. And then we stumbled our way through it and we ran the pilot. We hired a third-party evaluator to measure the data from the pilot. And then at the end of it, the data came back. It was very positive. We decided to keep the four-day work week. And then over the years, now was in 2020, and then over the years, 2021, 2022, we just got lots of questions from people about how did you all do it? And how did it work? And what did you learn? And what did you not like? And all those things. And so when I went on the sabbatical, I also just loved a four-day work week. I was a brute force entrepreneur for so long, working five days, six days, nights and weekends. And the four-day work week was this really powerful tool to get smarter as a team around what the most important essential work was in the business. And we were still getting inquiries and people were asking me for advice on the four-day work week as well. And so I thought I would love to build a set of resources and tools that would have I would have liked to have had when we were first going through it. And so that's what I did and built out basically an online course instead of like online resources, plus some coaching for teams that are really considering launching a four-day work week, really with sort of like, how do you get started? What does it look like? It's not trying to sell people necessarily on the four-day work week. There's a lot of good press and media and data research out there. But there's so many questions that teams have on the how, on the implementation, on the rollout of, all right, so you want to move to from five days to four days. Well, where do you start? And how do you tell those VIP clients that you're moving, you're going to work one less day? And what do you do about meetings? And how do you think about bank holidays? And what do you do when it comes to managers with one-on-ones? And how do you think about internal communication and what's the timeline? So all these sort of tactics that I think is really around the operationalizing it. That's where I built out a set of resources, a course, an online course, and then some coaching that I provide as well. Firstly, what a brave move to do that at a period where there is less evidence. And as you mentioned, case studies around other companies transitioning to that. Was that at all like chaotic or what was the first step? Did you just say that's it? No Friday or... How did you, as in your particular company, because we hear this all the time, is it just as simple as chopping Friday off and having a four-day week from you know Monday to Thursday? And obviously, we know that that's not the case. But what was your first step as an organization to start? What was the first key in the pilot that you really looked at doing? Yeah, we had no idea what to do. So I brought it to our leadership team in December of 2019. We said we would potentially consider it in 2020. And then COVID hit. And the question was, is this the best time or the worst time to launch a four-day work week? 
we decided our team, a lot of working parents, people working from home, taking care of kids, stress, anxiety, pandemic. We decided the first week of April of 2020, so about three weeks into the pandemic, that we were going to launch a pilot June, July, and August of 2020. Then we took three weeks internally as a leadership team to get our ducks in a row and get ready. And then we announced it to our team on May 1st, early May, right around this time, I guess, a couple of years ago in 2020, and said, we're going to pilot a four-day work week, and it'll run over the summertime, and we'll spend the next month, the month of May of 2020, still working five days, but finding all the ways to optimize the operations of the business so that we could transition to four. So we had sort of this like planning period, super helpful. And now when I advise teams, I say, look, if you want to launch a pilot of a four-day work week, then you should be prepared to you know, communicate with your team and prepare months in advance, as opposed to trying to just like wake up one day and flip the switch to four days. That's a great insight, Bang, because I think that's you know, doing so in a mindful way, I think that's such a key component of making it successful to really take the time also obviously to include people in some of the decision making, some of the shift in the job design and, and workflows that they'll see as a result of the shift rather than, and I guess also making that something that is almost, you know, we're testing this together as an organization. This is not just sort of a top down decision that we're going to inflict on you now. I'm curious to know, you know, when you work with leaders who are shifting to a four day week, what do you think is the biggest challenge that they face in making that move and how might they overcome it? I think there's a lot of anxiety for leaders around how will the business be negatively impacted? They're worried that they won't get all their work done or that the clients will not respond well. And there's a lot of internal like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? The world's going to end. It could be really bad. And I think that fear, the sort of psychological dimensions of anticipating all things that could go wrong are some of the biggest barriers that leaders face to actually trying out a four-day work week. In my experience, moving from a hybrid workplace to a fully remote workplace involuntarily during COVID because all of a sudden we were fully remote. Moving to become a fully remote team was a bigger transition and a harder transition than actually moving from five days to four days. But in so many ways, leaders think the opposite. They think, oh my gosh, we're going to work one less day. How is that possibly going to work? Um, but I actually think that from maintaining strong cultural ties thinking about how you coordinate virtually. All those things are quite challenging. And the 40 work week was actually a little bit easier. In my experience, and I think in many people's experience, that the external VIPs, customers, clients, partners, investors, they will actually receive it better than you think they will. But there is sort of this fear of, oh my gosh, we're going to say that we're working four days and then everyone's going to think we're not serious or that we're actually going to lose business. And so there's a lot of concerns about it, which is why I think a pilot makes the most sense is because you can say, we're going to run an experiment. We're going to try this out. And the burden of proof needs to be on the data to tell us that we should keep it. Otherwise, we will return to a five-day work week. And I think in some ways, trying to shrink the change for a leader, the, the change being perceived as a massive change going from five days to four days and saying, this is actually more possible than you think. Yes, your fears are totally valid. With the right planning and preparation, you can totally make this work. Trying to deconstruct vague fears into specific small concerns that can be addressed is one of the key things that the work that I do as a coach advisor for the four-day work week is all about is, oh, I'm so nervous about the four-day work week and saying, well, let's talk about exactly where that comes from. From a leadership perspective, that's one of the biggest challenges, I think, is doing that. The other thing I think is that there's a lot of, and I would consider myself like this in many ways, thinking that more is more. 
that just working more at working hard is in some ways key to success as opposed to working smart or thinking about, wow, and there's so many parts of the work week that are non-essential that are in some ways wastes of time. I think all of us recognize to a degree that not every hour of the work week is created equal. There's some hours that are really productive and there's some hours that are not. And there's some meetings that are a complete waste of time. So recognizing that there's a disproportionality in terms of input to output, effort to reward is another key thing. And that in some ways can challenge leaders that think that it's just about more, more hours, more work, more productivity, more whatever. And then recognizing and saying, actually, if you look back at the last six months, what were the things that had a disproportionate impact on success of the company in the last six months? And it's possible that those are a small number of little things. A few things probably had a disproportionate impact on the majority of the success of the company. And I think that's hard for leaders to sometimes grasp, certainly hard for me to grasp at times too. And it goes back to unpacking that conditioning, is doesn't it, Banks? Because we are conditioned every graduate job I ever held. And then even when I was working in leadership roles at Patagonia, there's a nine to five structure that we go through school in a conditioned period of time as well. And it doesn't matter what you do while you're at school. You just have to be there between 9am and 3pm here in Australia. So I was playing most of the time, not doing anything productive whatsoever in terms of traditional productivity. So it is unpacking in a lot of ways that conditioning that we have so long ingrained in us from those sort of societal forces as well. So it sounds to me there's two elements there for leaders to work through. There's their own internal conditioning and expectations and fears and really taking time to acknowledge and unlock those so that they can actually make decisions for the company that aren't imbued with their own personal fears as well. Totally. I mean, we're always going to bring our personal fears into it as well. And in some ways, that's just like, as humans, we do that. I think the other key thing is for leaders to try to walk the talk during the pilot and not sort of secretly work on the side. Oh, tricky one. It's a really tricky one. If I hear teams that are saying, yeah, we want to do this, but our leadership is not bought in, that's like the four-day work week is not going to work. It really requires buy-in and the willingness to say, okay, I'm going to work less. I'm going to try to really take the medicine of trying to get other people to take throughout the team as well. And for leaders listening right now, Banks, that may be interested in shifting to this four-day work week, you know, we are hearing a lot about this at the moment. And I think a lot of people do want to understand how it could work and give themselves back that time and their employees that time, what would you advise as being their first step towards this shift? I think the first step is to figure out why the four-day work week. Like, what is the purpose of it for you, for your company? I see a lot of teams that are really interested in it from a perspective of recruiting and retention of talent. And it's really a talent strategy recruiting and retention strategy. Oftentimes we'll say that if you're a small business, you might not be in the top 1% of compensation, but you can be in the top 1% of work weeks. That's a competitive edge that you can have over people that maybe can pay more. But I think it's really worth asking the question of why are you interested in a four-day work week? I think right now there's a lot of positive press about the four-day work week and it's working and people are trying it out and it's really exciting. And I tell teams that I work with, I say, it's going to get worse before it's going to get better. And in some ways, the four-day work week is not necessarily just a panacea for all the problems in your company, as much as it is a diagnostic tool to tell you what is working and not working in your company. Like This is going to be the best way for you to figure out these are the areas that are inefficient. These are the areas that are really working. Oh, wow. We have way too many people in this meeting. Oh, interesting. This whole priority that we thought was really important actually isn't corresponding to real results on the bottom line. So it is a helpful diagnostic tool to tell you what is and is not working in the company. And if you're a leader who really wants to know that, the four-day work week is a powerful forcing function to do so. But it's not necessarily easy 
of just like you can flip a switch and all of a sudden all of those benefits are instantly available to you. It takes work. It takes reevaluating some of your assumptions. It takes rethinking about norms and meetings and your own relationship to work. Maybe even your own sense of your self-importance or even the boundaries that you are setting or probably not setting with clients and partners. We have this thing of we just accept the norms of if the client emails us at night, we should respond right away or nights and weekends or whatever it is. And so I think in some ways, this is doing the hard work in the short term to create better ownership and agency over the work week. Oftentimes say that the four day work week is reclaiming something that has claimed us, which is work has claimed us, the work week has claimed us. And now we're trying to re-exert claim over this thing that has claimed us with its squishy boundaries, with its need to constantly be online all the time, all those pieces. Thank you so much, Banks. You've done such a beautiful job of really illuminating, I think, some of the challenges that we can face in these shifts. And I love that you said it will get worse before it gets better. It will get harder before it gets easier. I think to my mind, you know, some of the most important challenges that we face personally and professionally in life, you know, that goes for all of them. There is that discomfort that comes with change. And I think, you know, being mindful of that, as you've described, is a really important step for leaders to take as they embark on that journey. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm sure we could talk for hours more. (laughs) It's been a delight speaking to you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for this conversation with Banks Benitez. We hope you've gained some tangible insight into the practicalities of transitioning to the four-day week. As Banks shares, this is as much a mindset and behavior shift for leaders as it is a process and procedure shift for an organization, but it's easier than you think. To learn more about Banks and his work, find full details in our show notes, including how to connect with Smart Workweek and the important work that they're doing to support leaders and companies transition to the four-day week. As always, with gratitude, we'll see you again soon.